Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent over 600 LGBTI organizations in 54 countries across Europe and Central Asia, and I'm your host today, Brian Finnegan. In this episode, we're looking back at the unprecedented year that was 2020, and in particular at the engagement of EU institutions in LGBTI equality and issues. And to begin with, I'm here with two of my colleagues, ILGA Europe's Executive Director, Evelyn Paradis, and our Advocacy Director, Catherine Hugendubel. Hi both, and thanks for joining me on the front line. 2020 will not go down as the best year the world has ever seen, and that's an understatement. Let's travel all the way back to March, Evelyn, which seems like a long time ago now, I know, and with the sudden global response to the pandemic. We had fears in ILGA Europe about equality taking a back seat to the economic crisis that arose from the lockdowns. How do you think uh, this played out as the year progressed, Evelyn? Well, I I actually think looking back at 2020 that um, what the what developments took place in the European Union are the good news story of this year. Um, as you say, Brian, back in in March, um, in the ILGA Europe team. There was a there was quite a fear actually seeing the pandemic unfold and and all of the lockdown measures that we were heading for a period of time where we would have to really work hard at making the case for LGBTI equality to remain on the political agenda, never mind equality in general. Um, and I'm very glad that we were proven wrong in terms of our fears this year. Because what, what turned out happening um, in Brussels, at least, is that not only was equality firmly on the political agenda of the European Commission and at the highest level, but there were some very concrete outcomes this year. So I, I guess many of our listeners would have, would have by now seen that the European Commission adopted its first ever LGBTI uh, Q plus um, equality strategy, which is something that we've been working on for nearly a decade. And it is a very robust and comprehensive strategy. But beyond that, I think what we've seen coming out of Brussels as, as the year unfolded is has been stronger and stronger messages and, and, and the EU taking a stronger position in favor of LGBTI equality and and taking a stand for LGBTI human rights in a way that we hadn't seen in 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 recent years and and actually you know for quite some time so so in the end it 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 feels like um of course people like commissioner Daly who we've known to be champions of of equality for a long time but but many high level uh EU officials including the the commission president ended up taking you know, quite quite a stand, as I said, but and so this year, equality not only remained on the agenda, but I think it took a much bigger place on the EU's agenda, and that's that's indeed a good news um, at a time where we actually really need to look at all equality measures, whether it's for LGBTI people, but also for any marginalized and vulnerable group, uh, knowing just how much the pandemic is has hit the most marginalised in society uh, the hardest. We saw six municipalities in Poland being denied applications for EU funding because they had declared themselves LGBT-free LGBT free zones. Catherine, 
do you think this punishment, um, and I'm putting punishment in inverted commas there, was the right way forward? And do you think there should be further sanctions? Well, the EU is, is not only an internal market and an economic union, but it's it's based on fundamental values and principles, and they are all set out in the in the treaties. and And one of them is the principle of non discrimination. And so, once you see these family rights charters that have been adopted by a large number of municipalities in Poland for what they actually are, namely, namely clearly discriminatory in nature. It's only legitimate to say that those municipalities that have signed up to those charters, that have pledged to adhere to these charters, are no longer eligible for EU funding. I mean, everyone applying for EU funding needs to be transparent um, and uh, everyone needs to show that they respect the fundamental principles of the EU, including the principle of non-discrimination. And these charters actually call on municipalities to protect traditional families in all their policies, in all their initiatives, and in all their funding. And the definition of traditional families um, that they're putting forward is a marriage union between a woman and a man and their biological children. And so if they apply this, so the charter, to all funding that the municipalities are managing on local level, that also means that the town twinning money they had planned to apply for would be spent in this discriminatory manner, namely protecting and promoting traditional families and discriminating against all other kinds of families. And so it's it's absolutely right that the European Commission said no to these applications. And the European Commission needs to be actually even more rigorous and I would say more systematic in checking how EU funding is being administered and spent at national level. I mean, already in the past, we so, had so many concerns brought to us from member organizations how European social fund money has been spent and how these decisions are taken um, also in discriminatory manners on local level. And and the EU really needs to to step up and act on that. Poland and Hungary are, of course, the countries making the big news uh, at the moment in terms of state-driven anti-LGBTI hate. But are they the only countries where the EU needs to be putting its efforts to stem, stem that tide? And the new uh, rule of law mechanism, uh, how can that take real effect? So, no, Poland and Hungary are not the only countries um, where we've seen backlash. Um, I would say the extent to which Poland and Hungary continue to openly and really targetly attack women's rights, sexual reproductive rights and LGBTI rights, um, but also undermine the principles of democracy, such as an independent judiciary, for example, is, is quite outstanding. And therefore, there is a lot of spotlight on those two countries. Um, I think also how both countries have used the pandemic to push through discriminatory legislation is is quite remarkable. But the backlash we're seeing is much larger. Um, I mean, the last episode of this podcast focused on Bulgaria and the attacks on LGBTI rights we're seeing there. Um, in Romania, for example, the government is still refusing to implement a key judgment of the Luxembourg Court on free mood movement of same-sex couples. Um, and this is why it's so important um, that the EU stands strong. And this is why the, the clear statements that Evelyn mentioned before um, were so important for the LGBTI community across Europe. I think people have been looking to the EU and have been waiting quite a long time to, to see um, the president of the European Commission, for example, speak out very clearly against these attacks on LGBTI rights. 
when it comes to the the rule of law mechanism that I think you were also asking um, about in your in your question, um, so yeah, that that this mechanism is now has now been agreed, um, and it's actually. I mean, we haven't seen the exact text of the compromise yet, but um, many voices seem to interpret this as Poland and ha Hungary haven't given in, even though Orban is smiling and claiming victory. I think why this is important is because for the first time, there is a rule of law mechanism that would actually allow EU funding no longer going to countries um, where, you know, these kind of um, rule of law breaches are clearly identified And this mechanism can be triggered not by unanimity. So it means a majority of EU member states can trigger it, unlike the so far existing mechanisms, which kind of turned out to be a toothless tiger in the end, because they do depend on all member states agreeing together. We do know that there's still a large majority of EU member states standing strong behind the rule of law and standing strong behind fundamental rights, including LGBTI rights. Um, we've recently seen 15 member states coming together on the invitation of the Luxembourg government, welcoming the EU LGBTIQ strategy, for example. Um, so it's really key that this mechanism is actually on qualified majority voting and a majority of member states can trigger um, when these breaches are clear um, and would affect the management of EU funds. Evelyn, you spoke uh, earlier on about the EU LGBTIQ equality strategy um, from the Commission and about the the long time of work that ILGA Europe put into um, helping to bring this about. Uh, could you maybe go back to the beginning of that process and talk about the persuasion that was needed to to get to the final point? Yes, gladly. It's actually... Uh, Yeah, it's it's a it's a long story indeed. Um, Ilga Europe started to think about and and work on proposing or advocating for a an LGBTI strategy for the Commission like nearly a decade ago. Um, at the time, our thinking and our assessment was that while we were making progress um, at the European Union level, um, there was a need to bring the work in a more coordinated. Uh, concerted and comprehensive way because uh, the actions were felt very piecemeal on one hand. Um, there was definitely a need for a very high level commitment doing this work um, and more institutional commitment because already a decade ago we could we could rely on on quite a number of allies within the European Commission and we've always had strong allies in the European Parliament of course and a few member states, but it felt like we were relying on individual goodwill, basically, and and people's personal uh, willingness to help. Um, and in order to do the work in a sustainable, really impactful way, it was, it was our conviction that we needed to have something that was owned by the entire European Commission and including getting high level, the, the highest possible level of political support for this. So that was that was the thinking and that was the journey that we embarked on, as I said, I think 2011, 2010, 2011. Um, and it proved quite, yeah, it proved quite a campaign in terms of, of getting to where we got this year. Um, we did get early on support from, from the LGBTI intergroup and all of our allies in the European Parliament. Um, I have to say, so so several MEPs were on board with the ideas 
quite early in, in, in the journey and started to call for a, a strategy wherever they could and different resolutions and different um, committees. Um, and that led to the 2014 uh, report by Ulrike Lunacek, who had called for a, a, an LGBTI strategy. Um, but I have to say that we, we for quite a number of years, met resistant and unexpected resistance uh, at the level of, of the commission, mostly by, by successive commissioners. So first Commissioner Redding, and then uh, even more unexpected at the time was Commissioner Timmermans, who, who were reluctant to go for a, a strategy on LGBTI rights. And it wasn't, uh, just to be clear, it wasn't uh, out of lack of interest and belief in and support for LGBTI equality. It was mostly, I would say, two things. It was, on one hand, it, at the time in the European Commission, a reluctance to adopting any sorts of strategy. So not just on LGBTI equality, but whether it was uh, energy or trade or 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 any other topic, um, there was a reluctance to the, the notion of strategies. But I, I think what we were met with mostly was a sense of what I would say was complacency. Uh, it was a sense that um, we were told, well, things are getting better. Don't worry, we're supportive. You have our commitment. We do not need to develop this kind of a tool and policy for the work to happen. And so so that was the main, main challenge. And I think two things... Um, changed the the course of of the work the first um the first game changer was that we got more and more um eu member states so european governments on board to join an explicit call for a strategy um so the group of of eu countries that um were explicitly calling on the commission to adopt a strategy grew over time we worked very closely with several of them including uh malta and um then Minister Dali uh, to to gather the support of different member states. But I think the other important change that happened is, is not necessarily a, a positive one, but because the situation, I think, in Europe and, and more globally has um, has started to, to turn more negatively because of the backlash that we've observed in different countries, I think that sense of complacency that I mentioned was was shaken uh, and that more and more actors, whether it was EU member states, but also people in the commission started to realize that what we were saying, which was in essence, the work is far from being done, that um, they started to understand what we were talking about and, and understand that very concrete, bold measures are still needed, even if um, progress has been made over the last 20 years. Um, so those were two important changes, but indeed there's been very intense work um, done over the last two, three years. Um, and I think Katrine is even better placed than I am to speak about all the work that that was put into uh, making sure we got the robust strategy that we got adopted this year. Do you want to take from from over Catherine and, and, and talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, maybe just to, to add a few words, I think in the end, um, what really got us such a good document was was persistence. Um, we we worked, we continued to work very closely with the European Parliament. There was a resolution just before the elections um, calling yet again um, on the Commission for, for a strategy. Um, it was an integral part of, of the pledge for the European Parliament elections. So we ask um, members of the European Parliament to commit to that. Um, but also with member states, um, there was a, a high number, so 19 member states officially calling on the Commission yet again. And I think then, I mean, we just really saw how to get involved in all the different consultations um, the Commission was was doing around the LGBTIQ strategy. But I think it's important to stress that this was really work we were doing together with our, our member organizations, so together with organizations um, from the ground who could really bring the reality that Evelyn was describing um, to the Commission so clearly and make, make the real point of why that strategy would actually matter, um, together with many other organizations from the LGBTI community, but also with um, ally um, NGOs, like, for example, the European Disability Forum, to really bring forward coherent approaches on tackling um, discrimination, including on LGBTI rights in, in a very systemic um, measure. And I think that's what got us the very robust um, LGBTI strategy, but also the overall equality framework that the European Commission is putting forward and, and the links between, for example, the gender equality strategy, the LGBTIQ strategy, the victims' rights strategy. To, so to really work towards a, a co comprehensive approach um, from the European Commission. So we're coming to the end of what's been a pretty momentous year. And with the strategy and its implementation in mind, um, what are you both looking forward to in 2021 in terms of EU engagement? And Catherine, can you go first on that? Well, I think on the one hand, um, as I said, the community has been really waiting for a long time to see the Commission be more proactive again. And I think the fact that in the LGBTIQ strategy, we have clear announcements um, of legislation is really a, a key key issue. So legislation on, on recognition of parenthood under free movement is, is key, but also really stepping up the fight against hate uh, and, and online hate will be, will be really important areas. I think another real game changer and, and key for 2021 is that the commission is going beyond its competences and is actually saying we are seeing developments on taking back rights on legal gender recognition. For example, we are seeing countries still not having targeted national action plans on LGBTI rights. And we see it as our job to work with member states towards putting these rights and these, these national action plans into place is really key. And, and we're really looking forward together with members to work on that. I think just to, to add a third thing, the EU has a real potential to become um, a strong and key voice on standard setting on trans and intersex rights and on the recognition um, for non-binary people. And again, the strategy gives many, many opportunities for that. And I'm looking forward to working to fully seize them in the coming year. And Evelyn, what are you looking forward to? Well, um, building on what Catherine said, I think it is, it is, I'm looking forward to seeing the full potential of the European Commission and the European Union being used through the strategy. Um, 
it is it is an ambitious strategy in case uh, in case it hasn't been clear yet it's it's quite a, it's quite a lot of work that we ourselves have <laughs> um, ahead to do uh, based on this strategy but but I'm really looking forward to seeing where it can bring us um, in this in in the sense firstly of the creating that broader engagement across the commission that we've wanted uh, for for such a long time. Uh, already, very concretely, we're seeing that because of this strategy, um, our team has been a lot more able to reach out to different commissioners um, and and to see how we can work with many different parts of the of the of the European Union uh, in a way that we hadn't until now. Um, so with that, we're not just working with. The European Commissioner for Equality, Elena Dali, and her services, but that we're also gonna we're looking, you know, at, at building very close relationship with Commissioner on Health, on employment and social policy, uh, ideally also on 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 education, on on fundamental rights and justice, and so on. So there's potential to really bring all of the power of the European Commission in the coming years, and and I find this very exciting and at the same time a bit daunting in terms of a task. Um, and beyond that, I think I'm looking forward to how we straighten the conversation beyond the strict uh, uh, definitions of fundamental rights in the civil and political way. Um, this year has um, shown us so clearly the importance and and urgent need to look at socioeconomic inequalities that continue to leave so many LGBTI people behind. Um, and I think that message is also something that is being heard uh, by the Commission, by the Parliament. I don't know that looking forward is the right way to to say it, but but it's something that I really hope. Uh, will become a core piece of the work that we do with the European Union uh, in the coming years. On that note um, of hope, I will uh, uh, say thank you to both of you for for joining me today. And I know as a member of the ILGA Europe team, and I know I speak for all of the team when I say we, we look forward to continuing the work towards LGBTI equality in Europe and Central Asia over the coming year. To get a sense of how some of our member organisations are engaging with the EU in terms of what's going on in their countries over the past year, I'm speaking now to Lana Gobek from Legabitra in Slovenia and Tamás Dumbos from Hata in Hungary. Hi both and welcome to the front line. Lana, I'll come to you first. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what 2020 meant for LGBT rights in Slovenia? Uh, hi, hi, hello, uh, and thank you for invitation. Well, um, when we speak in general terms uh, that really affected uh, LGBTI rights in Slovenia, the biggest uh, change was uh, in March when the government changed to a really uh, alt-right, uh, far-right government. And uh, with that, um, for us, uh, because... Uh, the, 
even in the past, the political party that is currently in government had uh, huge ties with uh, with Orban's government, uh, and we knew that uh, if they uh, if if they will be in charge, uh, a lot of things will happen, especially in the field uh, of human rights, uh, LGBTI rights. So uh, our advocacy topics and uh, methods definitely changed. We weren't uh, as much as proactive. Uh, and looking for uh, for options how to basically to make situation better but um, how to stop rollbacks how we will be able to keep this level of lgbti rights that we now have and uh, also what uh, happened here was that uh, uh, as we also kind of thought that it's going to happen, the government started with a huge attacks for civil society, not directly LGBTI, uh, LGBTI organizations or LGBTI topics, but civil society in general, especially those in the fields of culture, human rights, uh, environmentalists. And this is something that basically really affected our work uh, from this more proactive in the past uh, to more like being on the defensive and uh, fighting to keep uh, what we have now and uh, to to have kind of a space to work in. Okay. Um, Tomáš, uh, Hungary has been far more in the news this year. Um, would you like to reflect on what's been a pretty difficult year for LGBT rights in Hungary? Indeed, it's been a terrible year. Um, I've been a volunteer and staff member at LGBTQI organizations for over a decade now, and this year has been the worst uh, since then. Um, it started uh, with the March when we had the first cycle of COVID and the government's best idea to deal with the COVID crisis is to come up with a legal proposal, a legislative proposal in parliament that bans legal gender recognition for trans people. Um, this was unfortunately adopted in May. Uh, so since then, trans people have no right to have their uh, gender changed in their uh, documents. Um, and that was not the end. Uh, we also had a big scandal in uh, September when um, um, a book which was published by a lesbian organization featuring fairy tales have been attacked by extreme right wing as well as government politicians. Um, there is an investigation going on against this organization. And then in November, three interrelated proposals have been submitted in Parliament. One of them has already been adopted. Uh, this abolishes equal through the Equal Treatment Authority, uh, Hungary's equality body, and two other proposals uh, which are still pending but are likely to be voted on next week. One uh, that would include transphobic language in the fundamental law in the constitution of the country and um, restricting adoption uh, for people living in same-sex uh, partnerships. So a bad year indeed. A bad year. And I suppose in terms of, of what's been going on there, have you, as an activist yourself, have you trusted in the power of the EU institutions to um, help? Not much. Um, unfortunately, we've seen that while some um, European uh, Parliament members and um, some people from the Commission have said symbolically that they don't agree with the government uh, um, adopting these uh, hostile legislations and uh, the political discourse that have formed in the country, but we've seen no uh, legal procedures started against the country. Um, as far as we know, um, they have uh, treated these things as in, within the member states' competence and not EU matters. 
Uh, and I think that's a very bad approach. Uh, such a systematic violation of human rights of a minority groups such as LGBTQI people is a um, is against the, uh, the the values of the European Union. Um, and the European Commission, the Parliament, and the Council should do something about uh, these member states which uh, don't abide by their obligations. Uh, we'll come back to the EU engagement in Hungary in a little bit. Uh, but Lana, will you talk to me a little bit about your your trust in the power of EU institutions to um, uphold um, LGBTI rights in Slovenia with this new government? Yeah, here... Um I have to say that I uh, really agree with uh, Tomáš that uh, here the EU should be not only vocal, but uh, because we see that they can be vocal, especially members of European Parliament or also uh, some parts of Commission. But um, this is, I think, not enough uh, that the actions should follow. Uh, I know that this is also like really hard for EU because uh, there are different... Um, different um, powers that uh, have that are held by the member states that are held by the EU but um, I think that uh, in the future when we look on how the EU should be in the future uh, we have to look here into a more common approach uh, especially in the line of human rights uh, some things uh, like human rights are non-negotiable and there is a line that cannot be crossed and um, here I think that it's uh, that in the future should be the biggest uh, the biggest problem on uh, how not only be vocal but also stand behind those words and really really set strong boundaries of uh, what can be done and what cannot be done. Uh, during 2020, uh, the Commission uh, withdrew funding from some initiatives in LGBT-free zones in Poland. What would your overview be of the withdrawal of that funding, Tomasz, if you want to address that question first? I fully agree with it. Um, uh, we've seen that, at least in the case of Hungary, um, that's the only thing that the government cares about, uh, spending EU money. Uh, you have to understand that most of the developments that take place in Hungary, uh, in the field of healthcare, you know, transportation, um, education, it, it's all based on, on EU funding. Uh, and unfortunately, the Hungarian government has uh, not only been quite corrupt when spending that money, but they're also using EU money to support organizations that have a clearly anti-LGBTQI uh, agenda, and they offer no, um, the EU money that goes through the Hungarian government is not accessible for LGBTQI people. Uh, so basically what's happening is EU taxpayers are funding uh, homophobia and transphobia in Hungary through the government, and I think that's unacceptable. And the only way to stop it is for the EU to make sure that um, fundamental rights and human rights of LGBTQI are respected uh, when they are spending EU money. Um, so a, if a, a local government or any public body or uh, a member state government decides not to abide by the human rights of LGBTQI people, they should be punished uh, financially as well. Of course, uh, Poland did react and and ended up spend uh, doubly, or not doubly, well, giving more funding to the those uh, initiatives in those LGBT-free zones as if to say, no, we won't accept this and we'll fund you. Lana, do you think uh, that it was the right response to withdraw funding? Yes, I, uh, I agree that uh, this was the only way uh, how they could react at that moment. 
Um, it is, I think that what we should really be careful, what uh, all the funders, especially EU, should be careful of is that um, they have really strong rules about who they are giving money to, but not only project-based, but also like organization-based, because there can be cases where some like or government or organization, their project that that's being funded, it's basically completely neutral. But in their uh, regular work, they are not, not upholding the values of you or like some human rights uh, values. And um, in the future, I think also here, uh, the really this, the support, the way forward will be with really strengthening of, uh, of those values, uh, not only on the project base, but in the general, uh, general work. But uh, here, what I really uh, see also important uh, with all these talks now around uh, EU budget and budget withdrawals, uh, yes, a lot of uh, a lot of infrastructural projects, a lot of projects in general is funded by EU also in Slovenia, but um, also a lot of NGOs are funded uh, from EU-based projects, and uh, here. When thinking on how to make these sanctions to uh, to the to countries that do not respect the, the uh, values of European Union, we also have to think about how civil society won't be actually uh, put into the to the worst position because of it. How to basically, if I can say it directly, punish the government but strengthen the civil society on the other hand. Yeah, you've mentioned there Hungary and Poland's uh, holding of the COVID-19 relief budget to ransom over the inclusion of rule of law uh, in its stipulations. Um, how do you think, Tomasz, the EU should be responding to this ransom? Um, I agree that the rule of law mechanism is, is very important. I mean, what we've seen in Hungary and in Poland is not just uh, an attack against LGBTQI rights, but uh, basically dismantling um, democratic institutions and uh, you know, undermining the independence of courts, of judiciary, of um, equality bodies, of ombuds offices, um, um, you know, putting people in those public institutions that only care about loyalty to the government. Um, so I think uh, the EU needs to come up with new mechanisms to make sure that it is possible uh, to, to sanction member states that don't abide by these rules. And the discussions about the rule of law mechanism, uh, I think, is, is um, pointing to the good direction, and especially this inclusion in the uh, compromises we've seen that, uh, that um, end users should not be harmed by the activity of their government, uh, meaning that um, the, even if there is a suspension um, to, to of support uh, uh, to a member state. Uh, the member state still has a duty to abide by already established contracts. And I think also important that in such cases, the um, applicants uh, from a country could directly turn to the European Commission for funding. So if uh, the Hungarian government is not giving any money to LGBTQI organizations, then the EU should step in and um, earmark a certain proportion of the money and spend that um, directly uh, to uh, the support of uh, national LGBTQI organizations. 
course, I think it's important that the EU has been uh, the number one funder of LGBTQI issues in Hungary uh, for several years now. But most of the, uh, the money uh, comes through projects, international projects that are not always fully in line with the direct needs of the community. Um, they are quite inflexible, so it takes time to come up with proposals that are in line with those uh, newly emerging needs. Um, I think more flexibility of funding and more flexibility specifically to respond to national um, developments is needed on the EU level. Um, and, and I think there is a possibility to, to come up with such uh, earmarked money uh, in the, on, uh, within the EU and to circumvent homophobic and transphobic governments in spending EU money. Of course, um, towards the end of the year, we had what Ilga Europe would see as good news with the LGBTIQ equality strategy from the EU Commission. Can I get both of your responses to that strategy and whether you think it will be helpful? Uh, Lana, I'll go to you first. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, LGBTQI strategy, it is something that we've basically been waiting for for quite some time. And um, it's it's a huge commitment also from the side of uh, EU to the LGBTI rights and to the improvement uh, of the position of LGBTQI people. And uh, here, I think that the main work will again be on the member states and on their willingness on how to prepare their action plans and how to implement those action plans. And uh, in places where governments are supportive, when they, um, they will know how to listen, to work with civil society, who is in touch with LGBTI people, who knows the needs of the community, um, this strategy can provide to be a huge um, toolkit, a huge roadmap, and uh, a really, a really needed, a really needed uh, document. Uh, also, in places where we, like here in Slovenia, we know that uh, under current government, we probably won't be able to make a lot of advancements uh, to maybe implement a national plan, a national action plan, or something. But uh, still, uh, what I find really, um, really important in the strategy and uh, a way forward, because in general, I do believe that uh, the future of EU is in more, I'm a federal a federalist in that way, in a more coherent union, in a more... Uh, in more closer knitted together union. So um, what we see here is also that they are kind of briefly touching also the, the fields that were set, uh, that were mainly in the member states, um, like um, places to legislate, not in not on EU level. For instance, uh, with the freedom uh, of movement, and if you're a parent in one, one state, you have to be a parent in other states. And here, uh, this is a typical typical area where EU till now or a couple of years, they, they steered away from those areas. They left them to the member states. And now we see that at least they are trying to set some maybe to say, I don't know, minimal standards or something for uh, also in the areas that are really important, that are basically that, that are touching the lives of people living in European Union. Okay. And Tomasz, What's your response to the strategy? I think it's a major victory for the movement. I mean, Ilga Europe and member organizations have been working on it for uh, long, long years. 
And I think it is a major achievement, um, not simply because it's a document, but because it contains specific promises to the community for the coming years, um, legislative proposals concerning hate crimes, uh, freedom of movement for rainbow families, um, also um, progress on the horizontal directive uh, forbidding discrimination in areas of life outside of employment, as well as um, strengthening the implementation of already existing legislation and soft law uh, tools such as funding and um, fostering cooperation between the member states. Of course, my biggest concern, and I think that's a concern for, for many people in this uh, part of the, of the European Union, is maybe the strategy will result in countries that are already LGBTQ-friendly to become more LGBTQ-friendly because they are encouraged to work um, in a more horizontal and comprehensive way, Why countries uh, that have a hostile attitude towards LGBTQI people uh, will be able to continue with that because the strategy is, of course, not a legally binding document on any of the member states. So um, I think it's very important that the um, the commission uh, who will implement this strategy uh, takes this diversity into consideration and make sure that uh, those uh, countries that want to be out of such a strategy and don't want to work on LGBTQI people are still forced to do it. Um, and if not, at least provide the funding for LGBTQI organizations and NGOs uh, to do the work that the government is not willing to do. Okay. It's been a pretty uh, difficult year, uh, not only because of the developments in, in, in your countries, but also because of COVID-19 and what that's, uh, how that's impacted LGBTI communities across Europe and Central Asia and the world. Um, so with that in mind, and also, you know, what's what's happening in your countries, how do you see, what are you looking towards 2021 with in mind? And how do you see the EU's role in ensuring LGBTI equality in your country as you go on? Um, I'll come to you, Lana, first. Um, I'm like... What the this COVID crisis and epidemics showed is that the minority groups are more touched of those crises. They are uh, more, more distressed. And um, it's it really showed also this in LGBTI uh, and LGBTI minorities. So I'm really hoping that uh, in the future, in the upcoming year, we will be able to um, basically reflect on that, uh, reflect also on the measures undertaken by uh, governments in all Europe, basically, to see how how disproportionately affected are minorities by that and um that we're going to also take a learning experience out of it and not make mistakes same mistakes uh, again and um regarding regarding the status here of uh, lgbti rights in slovenia i'm really hoping on uh, some advancement with uh also full marriage equality because uh, it was just put um the to the constitutional court um the adoption and the marriage so uh we are hoping that uh in in a year's time the constitutional court will say something about the topic uh i'm also hoping that uh, we will make some advancements in the field of uh, legal gender recognition uh that would be we are now for years been advocating for a more um for a more in line with uh, self-determination uh, practices. 
procedures that are regarding to the legal gender recognition. And uh, also, we we need to uh, address a bit uh, more the situation of uh, intersex people in Slovenia because this field is completely. Um, we started work uh, last year, uh, and now we have to continue uh, also our work and engage in a dialogue with the government. So we are really hoping for um, a government and officials who will be more prone to to listen to us, to work with us, and uh, to basically uh, advance the rights and equality of LGBTQI people. And Tomas, as we move into 2021, how do you think the EU um, can help uh, stop the backsliding and attack on LGBT equality in Hungary? I think it's it's rather difficult because, of course, the Hungarian government is um, trying to um, uh, interpret all the EU moves, uh, saying that the EU is trying to force uh, gender ideology on Hungary and force migration on Hungary. And the stronger the EU becomes in their um, vocal support for uh, LGBTQI rights, the, the more uh, this uh, interpretation by the Hungarian government gains ground. But nevertheless, I think it is important that the EU makes sure that the EU stands for the equality and non-discrimination of all of its citizens, including LGBTQI people. And whenever um, Orban or any members of the Hungarian government uh, start homophobic, um, transphobic and anti-women rants, uh, that they say this is unacceptable. This is not the EU uh, that we, uh, we we want. This is not the EU that Hungary has joined, and this is not the EU that the majority of citizens in EU countries and in Hungary as well want. Um, you know, just recently we've had a major scandal in the country um, with a member of a European Parliament um, facing criminal charges for participating in a gay orgy uh, with drugs in Brussels under coronavirus uh, virus regulations. And the overall overarching majority of Hungarian society says that this is hypocrisy. We have a governing party that talks about um, traditional family values and uh, marriage-based uh, families. And, you know, key, key politicians in the party don't abide by those same, same values. Um, and interestingly, another data that just came out today the support for EU membership in Hungary is record high. 85% of uh, people in Hungary say Hungary has uh, a place in the European Union. I think that means that the majority of Hungarians are not following what their governments are saying. And I think it's really important to emphasize that whenever the EU is imposing sanctions, they are not imposing sanctions uh, on Hungary, but on our current government uh, that is not um, not uh, acting on behalf of its citizens, but on its um, own individual uh, uh, needs and financial gains. Okay, on that slightly more hopeful note, we'll we'll finish uh, today. Thank you both for joining me and we will uh, be paying careful attention to what's happening in both of your countries. Um, thank you. Within the EU institutions, 2020 has been a very different working year and one that was not without significant challenges. I'm joined now by MEPs Terry Ranke from the Greens IFA in Germany and Maria Walsh from EPP in Ireland, both of whom are members of the European Parliament's LGBT intergroup. Welcome both to the front line. Maria, I'll come to you first. 
Um, amidst all the COVID restrictions, I'm sure your first year as an MEP turned out to be very different from what you might have been expecting it to be. Looking back, how's the working experience been for you? No, thank you very much for having me on and, uh, and delighted to be talking to you from the west coast of Ireland um, in amongst COVID and amongst this crazy year. And you're right, it's been um, it's been turbulent. It wasn't as planned. I think when we set out after the 2019 European elections, I feel like forever ago. But, um, you know, being a member on on the intergroup certainly has um allowed me as an LGBT woman and activist uh, to plant my feet further into uh, the brilliance and the infrastructure of the European Parliament. And when I say that, I mean, it's a case of like the European Parliament is like no other institution. Um, you know, here in Ireland, you have opposition and uh, and those in government and you have independence and you have various voices. You, of course, have that also in the European Parliament, but on sections like the intergroup that we have uh, for LGBT rights. It's a case of all across all party spectrums, across all uh, political beliefs, our very core uh, fundamental belief and value is that every one of our citizens gets treated equally regardless of where they come from, their creed, their gender, and of course, orientation. Um, and I've learned a great deal from, you know, seasoned members like like Terry, uh, Mark, and and really, you know, it, it, it's, again, on a personal front, it's, it's extraordinary reassuring uh, when you speak to a school, uh, perhaps in my constituency in Midlands Northwest, where their conversations might be around, you know, how do I talk about being gay or how do I support someone who is gay in my life? Uh, how do I start those conversations? How do I mind my mental health? How, like, you know, what do I do? And then a couple of days later, you're standing in, 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 in the chamber um, and you're speaking to a commissioner or you're speaking um, to another colleague across the parliament house and you, you, you feel the support and the wave of rainbow love, dare I say, coming from other members in the intergroup, and uh, and that for me is has been fundamentally changing uh, for for not just me, but equally for my team. So Terry, as a seasoned member, as as Maria described you, and co-chair <laughs> of the intergroup, imagine you, Terry, and, and a very vocal MEP on equality issues. What were your concerns in terms of LGBTI rights in Europe when the lockdowns began last March? Well, obviously, um, as Maria was already hinting to, um, we are always very concerned about the well-being of the community. And we know that especially in crisis situations, I mean, it's not only the LGBTI community, but minorities in general um, very often face the difficulties that the whole um, uh, the population is facing uh, to a much stronger degree. Um, and we have had a lot of people also um, getting in contact with us saying that this is a very difficult time for them, um, especially LGBTI youth that might not be out to their parents um, that, you know, during a lockdown have to stay at home all the time, cannot see their friends. And so we could also really feel that um, in the intergroup um, coming from, from different people to us. Um, and I also think that what was very challenging for us was also the political dimension, because um, we could see that in certain member states, for example, um, in Hungary, um, you know, this this crisis was really used also as a pretext to further attack LGBTI rights. We could see this horrid uh, trans legislation being passed, being rushed through the Hungarian uh, parliament. And I think that for us, 
it made our work even more important, um, obviously focusing on the community, focusing on the needs of the community, but also standing up to these political attacks and saying very clearly, like Maria was saying, in the European Parliament, across political groups, across member states, we stand up for LGBTI rights. And especially in this crisis, we are going to continue to do so. Maria, uh, you and I both arrived in Brussels from Ireland around the same time, both to new jobs. And for me, it's been a huge learning curve coming from Ireland and, and the, I suppose, the atmosphere for LGBTI rights in Ireland being so, you know, positive at the moment uh, to, to learn about what was going on in Europe. What's, what's been your biggest learning experience in this context? Well, how's the first year of your job going first, Brian? Is, is, is it going well? It's going great. I really love <laughs> oh, it. <good> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you we're, for still, we're still in it till 2020. Well, a few more years anyways. Um, but no, in terms of uh, as a new member of the intergroup and what I've learned, it's it's a case of we 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 on on a on a personal and national level, of course, have achieved a, a great deal. But, you know, on an IRA front, we haven't we don't have equality for all um, letters of, of our rainbow. Uh, and that's really important to highlight because why we, and I happily uh, and, and uh, concretely point fingers at, um, at countries like Hungary and Poland that Terry just mentioned for rolling back on the very essence of why the European Union started in the first place. Um, we also have to look closer to home and see where are our holes, where are our deficits. Um, and, and you don't unfortunately have to go too far down the letters to see that equality is not the same for me as a gay woman, uh, me as a gay white woman, me as a gay white woman representative as it would be for a trans representative. Um, or uh, a gay man uh, in 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 a in a rural setting, um, and then you know you take the your the national context and then you you bring it into Europe. And um, I have I have learned a great deal. I've learned um, as Terry shared, we did a a, a virtual uh, mission to Poland, and you're hearing of all ages just of the horror that they're living through, uh, and then the impact of the likes of this pandemic has has brought. I think we we had done a a webinar very, very into uh, very probably March April of of the pandemic, and I had forgotten how different households and different communities are bringing different issues to the forefront. So, you know, we spoke with representatives across the Rainbow family, and and they now had to give up their homes and their apartments in maybe in an urban area to move to a rural part because of you know job loss or or rent um, lack of rent security and now they had to go back into the closet because they weren't fully themselves within their family or their communities and that has a detrimental impact on their mental health um, and then we expect you know just to flick of a switch with with the vaccine that all that goes back to normal it certainly doesn't um, and as Terry mentioned you know, I sit in a in a party, the EPP group, um, who who has a member, um, the Fidesz government sitting in it, and it's been problematic for for many years. It's something that should have been taken care of in the previous mandate. Um, who we've we've watched in horror uh, since the start of this COVID uh, pandemic roll back and isolate um, its citizens based off its uh, based off a of citizen's orientation. And uh, in 2020, regardless of what's going on in the world of, of, of Brexit or a, a pandemic, that the very essence of the reasons why the European Union started in the first place should not ever be compromised. Um, and it's extremely frustrating. Um, but I've learned to use 
uh, and echo my voice. I've learned to ask questions. Um, I've learned to lean on the likes of Terry and Mark for support uh, and guidance. Um, and equally, I've learned to be really honest with where we are with our constituents uh, and where we are, uh, as I said at the outset here, um, where we need to be on a national front as well as a European front, uh, both individually and as well as a group member. Um, a lot, a lot to do, um, but you know, with the support of other intergroup members, um, both past and present. Um, you know, I spoke to Michael Cashman uh, over the pandemic at the launch of his book and someone like that is extraordinary um, gifting of their time uh, as well as Terry and Mark uh, for making sure that the, the push for fundamental rights and equality just is never too far away from from anyone's agenda. So Terry, it's been the first year of, of a new intergroup uh, and a challenging year. What what have been the most significant challenges for you, for the group itself, and I suppose the highlights or wins during this year? Well, I would say, I mean, also for us as an intergroup to function with this new situation under, you know, COVID terms, so to say that we cannot meet each other in person so much. I mean, we tend to maybe see each other once in a while in the parliament um, but working under these uh, preconditions is much more difficult for everyone so including us and um, also put the new well maybe not new but um, reinforced political challenges that Maria and me were talking about I think um, that uh, put a lot on our plate we had to do a lot we had to react in in a lot of instances um, but I would say that we managed really well. I mean, the intergroup uh, is growing. Um, we are bigger than um, we were in the last legislature. Now, again, we had a little bit of a drop after Brexit because we lost a lot of the UK MEPs. Um, but now we are growing and growing. We have um, MEPs from all member states now, which is uh, an historic first, which is really great. Uh, openly. So we had supporters before, but now we have open members from all member states. And um, we have, and I want to especially thank Maria here for that. We have more and more people also coming from the EPP, so from the centre-right of the European uh, Parliament. So we are really showing that we are uh, more diverse politically also. Um, and I think we have a lot of new great active members um, like Maria herself, but also others um, who really um, give us a big push in terms of how we are working, what we are doing, what we are focusing on. Um, and I think that we have seen both inside of the parliament. I mean, we have uh, influenced so many reports, so much of the parliamentary work, um, but also outside of the parliament in terms of the, the impact that we have. We had great um, action, solidarity actions with our colleagues in Poland, for example, where maybe you can remember this picture where we dressed up like a rainbow in front of the European parliament. Um, but I think we also had, yeah, you remember, um, which which went, I think, around a lot, um, which gave visibility to, um, to this struggle um, all across the European Union, um, but also other activities like the mission, for example, to Poland, um, that I think have been very influential. So I'm very, very optimistic for the next year. I think probably the challenges um, that we are facing are uh, maybe not greater than ever, but they have certainly not gone away uh, or they have not uh, become smaller. Um, but at the same time, also the support and the and the commitment and the readiness to fight for this struggle um, maybe has never been greater than now. So I think with this, we will really use 2021 to give another push for this um, fight for equality and diversity. 
So as we move into 2021, we also have the EU LGBTIQ Equality Strategy, which was published very recently by the Commission. Maria, can I ask for your response to the strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I welcome I welcomed it. And I, I welcome the fact that um I believe it's the first time uh we've seen something like this come from the commission. Um I think in a if excuse my poor English here, in a serendipitous moment, um we had a, a commissioner for equality um in, in Helena Daly who who's who's who I know has while I might not be in the same political family as her, but she's really showed up um, in, in in this trying time to make sure um, pen to paper happens and, and something like this strategy gets released. Um, equally, you know, if you look at the President Commission in her State of the Union speech, I mean, I was blown away at the fact that she called out um, uh, the, the LGBT free zones, um, that she in fact impacted um, and really held the the room in terms of her use of rainbow families that one parent in one room is a or one parent in in one country is a parent uh, in every and and when you have leaders like that 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 are chipping away at the 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 myths and the the stereotypes and the false nonsense that you hear coming from uh, from some countries um, around LGBTQI citizens then that that helps uh, particularly you know me and I, I and I believe the the intergroup continue to to pave the way for for more fundamental rights for our citizens um there's a couple of things I would have loved to see more of you know more more specific language around our trans community members um and um you know and, and sanctions uh and and calling out the conditionality attached to funding or or bet, for countries like Poland and Hungary who 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 feel comfortable in rolling rolling back uh on on rights but overall i think it's a great step uh, a lot to do um and now it's up to us in the intergroup to continue to keep the pressure on 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 hitting hitting the framework um and hitting the the to-dos that need to happen to protect our citizens now this is where Terry comes in and says this, this, and this was missing, and then I'm like, ah. So I wish you'd asked her first, Brian. <laughs> so Terry, what, if you think there's there's much missing, what's what's your? Do you feel it's comprehensive enough? And no, I think I completely agree with Maria. I mean, first of all, we welcome it very heavily, and I can only say that without Ilga and the LGBTI activists across Europe, the civil society, and the work of a lot of parliamentarians also before us, this strategy would have never come about. And I said it on the day when it was presented, and I'm going to say it now again, I think it's a great moment of celebration for the whole community in the EU, because we wanted this, we got it, and now we need to you know, start working and actually putting it into real legislation, you know, in real measures. So I'm, I'm very happy and pleased about it. I think there is maybe one thing that I wanted to highlight um, because, I mean, Maria was rightly referring to the president saying that a parent in one member state should be a parent in all member states or is a parent in all member states. And I think from the side of the intergroup, what we would have liked to see a little bit stronger is also that a partner, um, a marital, a, a spouse in one member state is a, a spouse in all member states because um, this is a little bit more vague in the strategy so far. And we would obviously like to see a mutual recognition, um, not only in terms of parent-children relationships, but also in terms of 
um, marriage or partner relationship in terms of civil partnership because as you know with the Coleman case um, uh, in front of the ECJ we have taken a very important step there and the ECJ has shown um, that you cannot take freedom of movement away from EU citizens or restrict their rights um, just because they come from the LGBTI community um, and I think that this is something that maybe the commission could have built on a little bit stronger in the strategy but apart from that I would really say Let's work on the things that they have proposed. There is a great lot in there. There is a lot of, you know, things that we now have to push. I have talked about the parliamentary work in the past, the reports where I think we have successfully influenced um, the wording on LGBTI issues. Now we have legislation coming up and this will be a big task for us to, to as co-legislator, um, make something good out of it. And the LGBTI strategy is just a great basis for that. So during the year we saw um, sanctions on um, LGBT free zones in Poland uh, being denied applications for EU funding. Um, given what happened in 2020 in Poland and Hungary, and I suppose the threat of it of this political anti-LGBTI hate, the spread of it, we, we've heard from a Slovenian activist earlier in this podcast and Today, we've published a blog uh, from a Ukrainian activist who is um, constantly under threat. And there is a fear of, of this spreading. How do you think the EU needs to continue to respond to this? Um, Terry, I'll come to you first. No, I think that um, what Maria was saying, um, that there was a reaction of the European Commission. Um, but one of the things that could have been stronger also in the strategy, but also not only coming from Helena Daly, she really is a great champion, but also from other commissioners, for example, Vera Jourova, Didier Reinders, and also the commission president, Ursula von der Leyen herself, um, would be when things like this happen, to really use all the tools that we have now, but also the, the tools that we are going to then have uh, from the next year onwards um, to stand up to this. Um, and I mean, most notably um, LGBTI free zones, where we as a European Parliament have repeatedly said that we think there is a case there, so we could start an infringement procedure um, and we could really do more to um, defend the, the rights of the EU citizens that are living in, in these areas and that are being discriminated against. Um, but I think also maybe on the more positive and enabling side, what is important, I heard that uh, just today there was a breakthrough in the negotiations on the rights and values program um, where we want to um, uh, give funds from the European level to human rights defenders, um, also in EU member states. We have had programs like this for outside of the European Union. And now we want to introduce something like this for inside of the European Union because we see, and I mean, um, in ILGA, you, you know about this much better than us, a lot of organizations that are uh, defending human rights in countries like Poland or also Hungary are being cut off national funding. Um, so we need a counterbalance from the European level. And I hope that this program will be one of the, of the tools that can be used um, from next year onwards to support this great and important and absolutely amazingly brave work that they are doing. And Maria, what way do you think the EU should be moving forward? Yeah, I mean, everything, echoing everything that Terry just shared there. Um, and 
uh, I sit on the the Libe committee, so Liberties, Home Affairs, and Justice. And I'd like uh, most the amendments that that my team and I put in to policy and legislation would be um, in support of LGBT citizens in reception centres and ensuring that they, uh, anyone who's coming into the European Union um, and claiming asylum based off their sexuality, is doing so with the greatest sense of support. Um, that's that's something that I think the EU needs needs to look at and and there's a whole area obviously of migration that we need to step up to and 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 fix um but taking for this podcast specifically then it it would be supporting our citizens that are coming into the european union for for protection another and is in terms of um you know policy change um and the awareness and the understanding that we have around uh, digital platforms um, and the protection of hate speech mm. to LGBT citizens, uh, because it is rife. Um, I mean, as a gay politician, I can only tell you my own experiences. But you know, when you're a cit- when you're a citizen and you're 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 trying to figure out who you are and where you fit in the world, um, then to be de- you know to receive such hate mail and discrimination um, is is astronomical in this day and age when we live uh, quite tactically through digital comms. And that only can happen if if our European Union sets um, the standard and then our, you know, our member states um, start actually looking at uh, the way digital platforms are working in our countries. Um, and that's, there are two areas that I think could could certainly uh, support our citizens better. And, and of course, um, you know, the sooner we in, in our group, uh, in the EPP group and in the European Union, um, look at uh, Fidesz and the Hungarian government. Um, and I can only say that as a EPP member, uh, a new EPP member, then uh, the sooner a lot of things will 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 be put right. Um, and so that that's echoing to uh, and reassuring to citizens, particularly LGBTQI community members who are looking at the likes of me going, but how can you sit in a group that, that fundamentally disagrees? Uh, and and, and um, I think that's really important. Okay, so a wide range of work is ahead of us. Ahead <laughs> just, of us just, a few, just a few things, Brian. Just a few, just a few things. <laughs> things in the world. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both for, for uh, joining me on the front line. And uh, thank you also to the intergroup for all the work you've done over 2020. Uh, we, at LG Europe, we look forward to working with you in 2021. Thanks both. Thank you. Thank you so much. We can only give this back uh, to you and especially also to all the ILGA team for all the great work you're doing. Thank you. A big thanks to Terry and Maria and to all our guests on this episode of the Frontline LGBTI Activism Podcast. And thank you too for listening. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe for more wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune in next time when we'll be travelling further on the front lines of LGBT activism in Europe and Central Asia. Goodbye for now.